In this episode, we'll be exploring subjects like emptiness, awareness, spaciousness, the sense of deficiency that lives at the core of the ego, but also this possibility that when we are empty, we can be filled, we can be fed, and come to understand the true qualities of our inner essence. You wanted to talk about emptiness. Why shall do you we? want to talk about emptiness? Yes, we shall. <laughs> because it's such a delightful subject. <laughs> I don't know. Why do I want to talk about emptiness? That's a good question. Why do I want to talk about emptiness? The importance of talking about emptiness is that it's such a fundamental experience within spiritual unfolding and also one that people have a great deal of trouble with, one that mm -hmm. people avoid. And I think the experience of emptiness is so often deeply misunderstood that it is, well, you know, even, even looking at the translation of the Eastern teachings to the West, the notion of emptiness in the East has a positive connotation. In the West, mm -hmm. it has a negative connotation. And that says mm -hmm. a lot about how we experience that state Right. So, right, right. you know, Rumi says something of uh, our lives are a frantic running from silence and mm -hmm. we, we equate silence with emptiness. Right. And, mm -hmm. but we, right. we equate it with a negative emptiness. Silence mm -hmm. makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think yeah. for those reasons, it's important to talk about. Yeah. You know, emptiness automatically invokes a fear of non-existence and death. Yeah. Right. You know, the absence of anything would be, would include the absence of me, you know, whatever we conceive me to be. Right. Well, and, and that's within our structure of mind, within our structure of ego, the absence of me, the absence of itself, it's e the ego, there's, there's nothing else perceived from the level of ego. Right. right? So right. emptiness has a very negative connotation, right? Non-existence. I think in the East, there's a greater appreciation for what lies beyond our egoic framework. And in the West, we, we largely don't think that anything lies beyond our egoic framework. And so mm -hmm. the notion of emptiness feels threatening. It feels like dissolution. It feels like, I mean, even just in the experience of boredom that one has, one begins yeah. to experience emptiness. And we treat boredom as a mm -hmm. problem. We treat it as something that is deeply, uh, well, it's a very unwanted state. And I think that speaks to our discomfort with emptiness, mm -hmm. the, the discomfort with boredom, the discomfort with silence, all of those states that we, that imply yeah. some kind of emptiness. One thing that occurred to me is that this is an excellent topic to explore in the context of the pandemic, because I think everybody right now, um, who would you know? Who isn't an essential worker or something, and still going about what used to be their their daily life? Um, a lot of us are dealing with huge spaces in our lives. You know, we're we're locked in our homes in some cases, um, not getting the same level of contact with other people in the course of the day. It's taken a pretty big chunk of our experience away. One thing that jumps into my mind, what you're saying is. The ordinary human experience that most people are living out is one that is intrinsically without a lot of substance or meaning. Mm -hmm. And I think what, that what happens in a situation like this where life comes to a halt as we know it, 
is that the underlying emptiness of our situation, the underlying unsatisfactory quality of our life becomes much mm-hmm. more known to us. It, you know, it rises up in our aware. It meets us. It's like, it's like we can't avoid it anymore. Right, right. In, in a lot of ways, you know, we can't avoid it by staying busy or occupied or entertained or what have you. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of people, I think, are confronting this this underlying emptiness in in a new way. I mean, we all know what it's like to be bored for a short period of time, but to have to sort of contend with yourself and your own experience over weeks and months, you know, with very little interruption, um, you know, it's kind of like you're, it's like a do-it-yourself Vipassana retreat almost. Um, I wish. <laughs> I wish. Unfortunately, alcohol sales have gone through the roof. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't drink and, and I don't think you do either. So <laughs> that hasn't come up. But but the temptation has come up. I mean, I have found myself sitting here in the late afternoon, which is kind of my least favorite uh, time of day. You know, and it's too early to eat dinner. And, and it's like, boy, a glass of wine would be good right about now. And I haven't had a drink in five years. but uh, and I, And I rarely think about it. But in the context of this extended, empty space in my life, you know, that's not being filled by a relationship or really a formal job of any kind or any kind of mythic quest, um, you know, whatever, the things that we normally sort of think that we're devoting our lives to. In the absence of that, I'm looking for all these little things to kind of occupy my attention. Yeah. Well, it seems that the ego will do anything to avoid emptiness because mm-hmm. emptiness is its death. and. Right. We come very close to the emptiness at the core of our ego when we know the deep experiences like loneliness and the gnawing, dry boredom that we can go through. Yeah. And to, to be honest, you know, the ego will entertain itself by being miserable, actually. Mm-hmm. It's one way to fill the space is by being miserable. Right. Because and at least it's something. It's something you can point to. Yeah. And like Gangaji said, I think once, maybe I'm repeating myself, but she said something like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to be a miserable somebody than to be a, a nobody, a nothing. Yeah. Yeah. For the ego. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. The continuation of the ego requires that we have an image of ourselves in some form. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. we begin to encounter emptiness, we begin to encounter the absence of an image. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and all that that image relates to, such as relationships and activities and entertainment, mm-hmm. and so there's a there's an encroaching emptiness that we face when we're forced into solitude. Yeah, and that's the problem with boredom as well, and you know even long pauses in conversation, which we kind of touched on. Um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about this um, because what does the ego require to sustain itself? It likes. Images, as you stated, it likes narratives. It likes this feeling of propulsion, like it's moving in a direction towards something that we usually think of as being better than where we currently are. Um, It's not getting rewarded for anything it's done, necessarily, unless there are people around just kind of feeding up compliments or something. It needs an object to relate to. You know, every me depends on something else, yeah. Yeah, and none of that's being reinforced. And so, you know, we're not, we don't physically but. Well, I suppose, Sorry. yeah, there's lots of ways <laughs> to reinforce yourself by yourself. But um, well, that's why that's why people become so unhappy is because when you're in a situation where you can't reinforce your sense of self with another person, perhaps, then you mm-hmm. fill your mind with, you know, other entities, other objects. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's not a physical feeling of free falling, but in a way the ego feels like that's what's happening. It's like the rug has been pulled out and it has no support anymore for what it thinks it is. 
And that's the inherent condition of the ego that it is always in avoidance of. It is always in a state of free fall with some kind of false ground beneath its feet. Mm, right. So it was interesting to me just watching my own brain in this extended state of um, interruption <laughs> from what I used to consider my normal life um, is the way that my brain, in order to kind of fill that space, will tend to offer things up. Uh, like if you've ever tried to train a dog to do something, the dog figures out that there's a treat, but it's not quite certain what it needs to do to get that treat. So if you wait long enough, it'll start filling in by offering behaviors. It might sit down or roll over or, you know, bring you something, trying to get it right. And I, I noticed that that's what my brain does too. It's like, is this going to make you happy? Is this thought going to get you excited? Is this going to delight you in some way? And so these various sort of phantom experiences will kind of cross through my mind, filling in that space that would have been empty and silent. It's quite incredible that the egoic mind will use anything, anything, you know, anything. even the most random of things to, to fill that space with something that, that seems to be an object to reinforce yeah. its existence. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think I believe this is what happens actually when people report their life flashing before their eyes before death. It's a, it's a sequence of very rapid images that the mind is trying to find mm -hmm. something to relate to in mm -hmm. some kind of solid fashion as it is dissolving. Oh, interesting. As that selfhood is dissolving. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. What a wonderful perspective on that. Mm -hmm. And it can be, you know, positive, negative, anything, anything maybe unresolved or anything lingering, anything that's created some kind of stain in the past is subject yeah. to remain there as an object to be rehashed. Yeah. When I was thinking about talking about this topic, the first thing that came to mind was pratyahara, the idea of withdrawing one's senses. Mm -hmm. So, and for listeners who may not have heard this word before, it's one of the eight limbs of Raja Yoga. Um, and it's a practice where we systematically withdraw our senses from the outside world and instead turn them inward. And by withdrawing our energy from perceiving the things around us, we can then discover the inner state of emptiness. And as as we systematically kind of peel away the sources of incoming information, you know, we're sort of shutting out light and sound and then going even deeper to a place that's beyond um, sensation and language and ideas of self. There's a place where nothing exists but your awareness alone. And even that can vanish. Even our, our sense of consciousness can vanish even. You know, this is why there is a systematic approach in, in, a, in any path. You know, yoga is very good at detailing and making it sort of systematic and scientific in, in its approach. You know, we have to be brought to emptiness slowly because mm -hmm. there's great resistance in our subjective mind, the mind which perceives objects, to experiencing absence, to experiencing mm -hmm. nothingness. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we associate that absence with death, as we've said, and we associate death with fear. And so there's great terror right. in approaching emptiness. Mm -hmm. right. It's a really good um, inquiry to make into why, you know, as we started out talking about is why, why are we so afraid of emptiness? Aside from the death yeah. thing, you know, why is it, why is it so difficult to be bored? Why is it so difficult to sit through 30 seconds of silence with a partner, yeah. you know, over the dinner table or something, you know, or have a gap between jobs, you know, anything that represents a bardo of some sort where we're waiting because, you know, it's that uncertainty comes in. 
The ego doesn't like not knowing what happens next because that makes That's it feel right. a loss of control. I think the ego is very addicted to routine and predictability, uh, maybe above almost anything else. And emptiness is the ultimate absence of all of those things. Yes. With any of those things that you suggested, there's a discontinuity that takes place. The ego, not only does it like it, its familiarity mm, yeah. and sense of comfort, but it also craves continuity, continuity of itself. Yeah. And yeah. so anytime that that is anytime that that is disrupted there's a there's a great discomfort and a great uncertainty that arises. And you know, when it comes to boredom or such states or st st waiting or those moments of silence, we can't help from the egoic point of view of associating that emptiness with some kind of deficiency. Hmm. It feels negatively charged rather than positively mm -hmm. charged. And that's mm -hmm. the difference between ego and spirit is that from the ego's point of view, from the ego, ego's logic, emptiness seems negatively charged. It seems like a deficiency, such as boredom, yeah. the gnawing, dry emptiness, you know? Yeah. Whereas from the point of view of spirit, uh, emptiness has a positive connotation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that because it's, from the- it's still, it's quiet. Right, because from the perspective of spirit, it's simply being. Uh, from the perspective of the ego, it's an absence of doing, and aren't we conditioned to simply keep doing and achieving and moving forward and having a trajectory and and being stimulated and yeah, yeah, all yes. of all of our sensory addictions. Once those stop, um, you know, it's sort of like a withdrawal, isn't it? Yeah, right. Withdrawing from the things that typically feed us. Yep. Like when Rumi says, we're frantically running from silence, that's the way that we're doing it by yeah. chasing the objects of the senses, stimulation, uh, like intellectual, you know, puzzles, all sorts of things that, that stimulate and invigorate the egoic mm -hmm. consciousness and intellect. Emptiness removes the agency of the ego. You know, being in this bardo, this interruption, this emptiness of experience, the ego is not being allowed to do what it normally does, which is to try and further itself, to expand itself, to glorify itself. Which is why we see people going mad, reading the news endlessly, occupying themselves with every, every manner of conflict and struggle, because when the ordinary flow of one's life has been disrupted, the ego can't tolerate it, so it replaces it with something. Yeah. yeah. Let's look for a moment. When the Buddha has his enlightenment, he refers to it as nirvana. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, nirvana is almost always misunderstood as some kind of conception of heaven or bliss. or, And mm -hmm. it really, nirvana means cessation, end, mm -hmm. extinction. Mm -hmm. And that implies emptiness. Yes. I mean, that's the hallmark of the Buddha's teaching is shunyata, emptiness. And that's where the evolution that the ego is involved with is leading mm -hmm. to emptiness, is leading, leading to an ultimate cessation and extinction. Mm -hmm. That is necessary before we can ever know and come into contact with the dynamic quality of existence. I mean, if we were to really know this emptiness as a gift, like this bardo, this space that's been revealed as a gift, we would actually experience it as the Buddha experienced it, as, mm -hmm. as a cessation of the life that we have known. Yeah. 
the birth of something new, actually. But I fear that very few people, I mean, I've met a couple of people who are using this opportunity that way, but very few people seem to be. Mm-hmm. When you say they're using that opportunity in that way, what are they doing? They're befriending the decadent nature of this ordinary flow of life ceasing. They're embracing the destruction of it in, in ah. their own psyche, in their own psyche. Actually sounds kind of romantic. <laughs> there is a romance in it. Yeah. yeah, it does. Yeah, there is a romance. I saw this a lot right at the beginning of the pandemic. I saw a lot of people were really moved by, it was sort of this notion of, um, God, the world's come to a rest. We're all, we, all, we all can take a rest. Yeah. And that was shortly embraced, but then it was quickly sort of, um, because that was ushering in something that was actually bringing in a possibility of going deeper into the emptiness. And I, th- and I think it got to be too much for people. It started to, the, the emptiness started to get too real. Yeah. And so, and so people began to fill that space again with something. Yeah. Yeah. There's this tendency to think that it's always going to be this way. Like I have to remind myself sometimes I wake up the, in the morning and it's been the same day for six, seven, eight months now. And, uh, and, you know, I have to like sort of caution myself against falling into this resignation that, okay, so this is my life now and it's always going to look like this. Um, Cause that's what my mind wants to do. And then we get to go down the whole emotional roller coaster of, you know, how, <laughs> um, of feeling sorry for that would be That's the vanguard of emptiness. Really? Because I don't yes. feel like that's what it's, I don't feel like that's what I'm approaching when I do that, but you're probably right. Nobody ever approaches emptiness with some kind of glee. It's always approached with dread. I don't know if dread, I mean, I'm not arguing with you. It's just... The resignation that you're describing is the vanguard of emptiness. Yeah. I remembered what you said about um, a couple conversations ago. We talked about Dark Night of the Soul. And, you know, I felt that I had gone through that period over the course of, well, several such incidents over a week or two at a time. And you mentioned years and years of clinical depression and I got to thinking about that, unfortunately, because then it was like, oh, maybe, maybe I am depressed, you know. And I started to notice, in combination with what we're talking about as far as the pandemic, started to notice that, yeah, if this is what my life is going to look like forever, um, that is kind of depressing. And, I, and so, I, you know, I inquired into that. It's like, well, why? Why does that trouble you? What is so bad about this? And it's all the things that we discussed. You know, there's this absence of things like delight, you know, like I'm, I'm not surprised by anything anymore. There's not a lot of magic in my experience in the world, but I don't really know how to navigate that, you know? Uh, let me first clarify that when I spoke of the long period of the dark night of the soul, I don't say that in a fatalistic way that it's like, that's yeah. everyone's going to go through that. But I think very few people who see to the full mystical unfolding of realization don't traverse that long desert of the dark night and it has everything to do with resignation and gnawing boredom and dryness and just the arid atmosphere of no delight no stimulation no entertainment and you see the dynamism of life has not ceased but the dynamism of the ego is ceasing and it is our task to learn to embrace that entirely 
to actually get to the very bottom of what's there in our resignation, what's at the core of it. I mean, maybe it's just because I've spent a lot of my adult life being depressed. It doesn't, I mean, it's kind of just an extension of that. Um, and it's not like debilitating or anything, but it's... Um, I, I'd say it's the result of, of spending our adult, adult life entertaining ourselves and distracting ourselves from the underlying emptiness mm -hmm. of the ego. Yes. And like you said, in the beginning of this pandemic, there was that sort of like, oh, this is so nice. Everything stopped and we can just be now. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. after a while, that got to be tedious. And it's kind of like what you see on with people on retreat. It's like the first three days. I do like I do a week long retreat. First three days, everyone's in bliss. About two days that follow that, everyone starts to become restless. And the last three days of the week, everybody's talk or last two days of the week, everybody's talking about what they're going to do when they get home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld does a stand up riff on all of that, where he's talking about like. Uh, you know, all the steps you went through to get to the theater and then your friends. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, we gonna go? uh -huh. Have you seen that one? <laughs> and then it's, it's like, hilarious. okay, we got to go home. <laughs> yeah. And well, that's how the ego works because it's, it's like there's something in that bliss that actually bliss is the byproduct of emptiness, but it takes us from our ordinary orientation of self. And mm -hmm. so in order to feel like ourself again, we come into conflict again. Yeah. It's like we need a war. We need a problem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something to, to kind of bump up against so that we know that we're real. Yes, right. And, and that points to the emptiness because without that thing to war with or that mm -hmm. thing that is a problem, the ego begins to know its own insubstantial nature, its own empty nature. Yeah, yeah. And it dreads that. It's kind of the same thing as with, when you try to get into an argument with someone and you're just like raring to go and that person isn't going to like fight with you and they just stand there and look at, look at you like you've lost your mind yeah. and it just kind of deflates you, right? Like all the, like somebody pulled the plug out. Yeah. You're all sound and fury. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then there's that nothing deflation. to fight with. Mm -hmm. That deflation. That's exactly the experience the ego has as it approaches emptiness is it feels deflated. Yeah. And the problem is, is that Ordinarily, we emotionally or psychologically react to that sense of deflation instead of seeing it as part of a natural process. Right. I've noticed in my practice that what happens in response to that deflation is that things that I thought I had already dealt with and, and dissolved and transcended or whatever, old issues will kind of represent themselves to be recycled because they feel familiar. Yeah. And it's like, I've seen you before. I've already dealt yes. with you. Why, why are you back here? You know, jealousy. I'm not, <laughs> yes. you're not part of my, my entourage anymore. Papaji said something extraordinarily wise that I always adored. He said, as you begin to awaken, all the gods and all the demons of your past will come to reclaim you. Mm. Oh, and so that. he would say, be, be absolutely vigilant against those, both, not just the demons, but the gods also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely, because it's almost like they're kind of sneaking in the back door to try and, uh, you know, reclaim yeah. territory. Exactly. And that's exactly what the Buddha experienced under the Bodhi tree in his, let's say, descent into emptiness or ascent into emptiness is the gods and the demons came to tempt him into something, into some kind of, you know, uh, seduction or into some kind of fight or war. And he just sat Mm -hmm. motionless. You know, he just sat in his own... In his own being. Yes. 
And then when those gods and demons go quiet, emptiness reveals itself as it really is. Mm -hmm. The confusion in that is that we often conflate the sense of lack and despair of emotional emptiness with the pristine stillness of emptiness as it really is. Once we can separate them, Mm-hmm. It's clear that real emptiness is stillness, not deficiency. So I'm going to throw something super weird out there. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down on my paper this morning, envious of the dead. <laughs> and um, this is pure me. When I, when I wake up in the morning and I have that sense of like, oh, it's the same day again. How long is this going to go on? And, you know, then my mind will sometimes leap to, well, you know what? I could always kill myself. It would be easier to be dead. You know, and I don't mean that literally, but um, I'm thinking about, you know, what would be lost? I mean, what's, what's the difference between emptiness in life and emptiness in death? I mean, except that there's no bills to pay in death and, you know, the, the sort of logistical I don't know if that's intolerably dark for what we're talking about, but not nothing's too dark for me to shed light on for us to shed light on. If you wake up in the morning, met with it, let's let's because I think this is common to probably a lot of people who are going to listen to this. Mm-hmm. We wake up in the morning with a sense of dread, and if we don't have a sense of dread, we can quickly construct one. Sure. Let's consider that the impulse towards suicide is a desire to put an end to that miserable narrative. To kill that. Yes, yeah, it definitely is, yeah. To kill that with love. To kill that with an act of release. To actually liberate ourselves from the bondage to that narrative. The mind is so intransigent, though. The mind doesn't want to give up what it thinks it knows. Right. So, you know, and I'm, I'm a prisoner of narrative all the time. As a writer, like, like I think in narratives, that's just the way my life has constructed itself over time. Everyone does. Yeah. And um, cultures run on narratives. And I can feel that sort of the intolerable sense of, well, if I get rid of that narrative, then I don't know anything and I can't predict anything. Emptiness. And that doesn't, and that doesn't feel so good. You know, and it's like, yeah. it's better, it's easier to be miserable and be somebody or, or to know what's yep. going to come next. Than- and this is, yeah, this is what I meant about that conflation, because when we begin to touch emptiness, it feels like lack. Yeah. It seems like deficiency. I don't know anything. I have no life force. Yeah. There's no joy in life. There's nothing entertaining in life. Mm-hmm. But that's just the beginning of our descent into emptiness. Yeah. Gangaji used to say, in regard to this uh, descent into emptiness, she said, you know, we spend so much time becoming somebody, but as we descend into this emptiness, we'll be delighted to be nobody, to know nothing. Because that's the state of the child. That's the innocence and the delight of the child. Yeah. And there is such a delight in that. You know, it's not something that I'm personally able to sustain all the time, but I have had that experience of being nobody and it's so liberating. It's like moving through the world as a ghost and nothing touches you. And there is a magic in that. Like I was complaining a minute ago about there not being enough magic in the world under this lockdown condition, but the magic in being nobody is, is palpable. Yes. So the egos, the ego starts rubbing its hands together saying, okay, so how do I become nobody? (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> I think didn't, didn't Ram Dass actually make a movie called Becoming Nobody? I think he did. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, it's not something that you can force to happen. Um, it's it just no. Arises. It can't happen as a uh, act of will of the ego. Right. Right. Because then you would be creating something in place of something. That's right. And that's what a lot of spiritual people do. They have spiritual experiences, whether it's through meditation or psychedelics, and then they want to reconstruct something, right. something that's more spiritual, more true, more loving, more. And but it's just another construct. Right. Yeah. The mind cannot tolerate not having a me to relate to. That's right. Okay. This is silly, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, I have this little piece of a basil plant that my dog knocked off by accident, a little six-inch sprig, and I stuck it in a, a jar of water so that I could keep it fresh until I used it in cooking. And uh, within, I don't know, half a day or a day, it started to send out these little roots into the clear water, these little white roots. And then the next day, they were like an inch long, and the day after that, they were like two inches long, and now they're starting to fill and take the contours of the inside of the jar. And it's just been fascinating because that was an empty space um, in the beginning. Uh, and now and now this intelligence that's, you know, somehow inherent to this little sprig of basil has determined that these things are going to form. And they're, you know, fairly random, but they also have a an intelligent pattern to them. And, you know, I'm <laughs> I should probably plant it at some point, but I've just been having such an enjoyable time watching what it does next. Uh, because I have nothing to do with it. It's just some something coming out of emptiness that I can observe. And, um, mm. you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of a neat thing. I love I've that example because, it, it, you know, it goes, goes back to that very old, I think it's a Zen phrase about, you know, having an empty cup, right? Mm -hmm. Unless there's an emptiness, if something's already full, it can't be filled. Yeah. Right? And so, or like in uh, Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, where it says, you know, that we tend to perceive the house as the walls and the windows and the doors, but it's the space inside that makes it meaningful and right. useful, right? right? It's the space inside. Exactly. And that's a really good point is, you know, emptiness is necessary for anything to manifest. Yes. For things to flourish and grow and yeah. Right. Right. And, and so in that sense, it, presents, well, as we said, sort of a canvas that can be filled by whatever the divine chooses to fill it with and opportunity for something new to arise. We talk about this in terms of things like jobs and relationships that, that end and, you know, you can't really move on to something new until you've resolved and cleared the space, cleared all of the old away and made space for something new to fill it. So without that emptiness, nothing, nothing new could arise, nothing new could inform us, no new whimsical creation, you know, could emerge to delight us. Right. Right. I love that point. It's brilliant because we perceive from the ego point of view, we perceive things as empty, dull, lifeless, dead. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when we truly encounter emptiness and space, it's exactly as you say, it's a space of potential where things can okay. grow and flourish and emerge. And we discount that, you know, we, we discount what the artist knows so readily in that for the painting to come through or the music to come through, there has to be an emptiness. There has to be right. a readiness to be filled by something. Right. And right. instead of filling, you know, our task in spiritual being spiritual practitioners is to not fill that space with the ordinary junk of our mind, mm -hmm. emotional reactions, 
but to to really cultivate that open space where life can fill you. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, there's a way in which in, in modern Western culture, at least, um, we tend to over clutter our lives with <laughs> stuff and people and activities and, you know, whatever the hot new thing is, whatever, you know, and conversations and cultural memes and uh, controversies and whatever it happens to be as, as almost a wall against experiencing the emptiness, which if we could really, yeah, you know, we're just kind of like yeah. piling it all on. And, um, you know, you know, what's funny about that is the flip side is, is at least for me, is that my practice has sort of matured over the years now. Um, I find myself annoyed by stuff. Like I always want to like get rid of more and more stuff because it's just, it takes too much energy just to perceive it around you, you know, let alone care for it and, you know, have to sell it when you're done with it or, you know, repair it when it breaks and all the stuff that goes along with that. Yeah. Um, I'm not talking about people so much, but, <laughs> you know, but things. Um, yeah. I mean, it's an enormous drain of energy, but like so many of our other bad habits, it keeps us from really kind of confronting our stuff. Yes. I mean, our inner stuff, our psychological stuff. Yes. I love that association that you're making, whether it's inner stuff or outer stuff. Either way, it's filling space. And, and as we mature and ripen and deepen, we're not interested in filling space anymore. We're actually interested in clearing space. Yeah. Becoming simpler, quieter, more still. Right. Right. Finding peace. Because aren't we all just after peace, mostly? Happiness and peace. Frantically running from silence. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about um, the experience of finding emptiness within oneself, because mm. I think that as we progress on the path, we are increasingly approaching emptiness. As we begin to, for example, bring up our old issues, heal them, and then dissolve them or integrate them, um, begin to peel away our mental structures, our egoic structures, the ideas to which we're overattached and and as we do that, this isn't just a theoretical thing either. We're approaching sort of an inner emptiness that is experienceable. For example, if you sit, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, and I didn't say it very well, but if you're sitting quietly and you have begun to remove your definitions of who and what you think you are, eventually there's almost nothing left except the emptiness that contained it. Yeah. And in that emptiness, like I said, it's... Um, it's not actually empty. It contains a power. You begin to perceive that there's love there. To me, that potential feels like this vibrant, throbbing thing that's just waiting to be released or expressed or mm -hmm. um, invoked in some way. Yes, absolutely. In one sense, I mean, there's many objectives to meditation, but in one sense, this is the objective of meditation, to become empty, yeah. to become still, to yeah. become silent. You know, one thing I think that we should say about in, in following up with what you're saying is the ego is terrified by emptiness. And so our approach to emptiness is filled with resistance. It's filled with fear yeah. along the yeah. way or episodes of fear, we should say, along the way. I mean, the first time I ever experienced absolute emptiness, I was utterly terrified. And uh, mm. it took me another four or five years before I even understood it even, understood it even happened because I had lost all conscious awareness and uh, oh, wow. experienced a complete void. And that is not 
I mean, in one sense, it might sound attractive to some, but it's not something that our egoic structure meets willingly. It's mm -hmm. not something that we, because we do, as we've said already, we equate that with annihilation. We equate it with death and absence and non-being. And uh, so our approach to emptiness must be a gradual one. And, and we encounter various levels and layers of emptiness. Now you're making me wonder how much emptiness I've actually experienced because, I mean, my experience of it was I reached a state in meditation where I did not recognize anything that I could have thought of as me, quote unquote mm -hmm. me. Like mm -hmm. I, that had all disappeared. My, my gender, my name, my, you know, there was just an awareness and some very vague impressions. It was not, I don't know if I could call it a void, but it was just a still space with no me in it. But power, I felt power, like I felt powerful. You mm -hmm. know, there were energies around me that I could perceive. Mm -hmm. Yep, there are, there are grades of emptiness. And it's, it's probably beyond the, the scope of our podcast other than to mention them. There are grades of emptiness and, um, or, or we could say levels of emptiness. And they're all valid. They're all important aspects. But you know, if we think of the analogy I like to make often in talking about emptiness is imagining your, your ego as a house. And in, in spiritual work, you're gradually dismantling that house such that in the end, what you're left with is the absence of a solid structure, right? right. If we go to that too quickly, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be a, a fight on behalf of the mm -hmm. ego to maintain itself. And so it's a very gradual process of thinning away. It's as if what spiritual practice is doing is applying a sandpaper rub to the house, mm -hmm. little by little eroding that structure until there's a peaceful transition into that pure openness, that pure emptiness right. of being. Um, right. But, it, you know, when I experienced emptiness the first time, it was terrifying because my structure hadn't, I had done no work on my structure at all. Mm. Uh, you oh, know. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I was not to mention that I was using a psychedelic substance. And so uh, I had no association for that experience whatsoever other than just pure terror. Oh, um, wow. You know, and in that particular experience, it was the absence of all experience. There was mm. no experience. Zero. And were you able to, did you just immediately snap out of it or did you have to stay there a while? Well, I had, uh, so, uh, I had someone pulled me out of it. Oh, wow. I was with someone who uh, saw that I had left. And uh, between the moment before and, and that moment, you know, all I, there was no memory. There was no recognition of anything. It was just pure emptiness. Right. But, uh, you know, from one moment of recognizing the scenery in front of me to the next moment, having him shake my arm and ask me if I'm okay. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's nothing in between at mm -hmm. all, you know? Oh, so then the terror came after. Yes. The terror came after. And that's why, you know, ah. yeah, it wasn't in the experience of the emptiness itself and the emptiness itself. There was no experience. Gotcha. Okay. No quality, not even awareness. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Well that, that has happened to me a bunch of times in meditation. And I always kind of associated with that with, associated that with the idea that, oh, well, my, my brain has just gotten so quiet, I'm not creating any new memories. But, you know, I'm actually must have been aware, quote unquote, in that gap, because there's a gap, you know, in my experience. But maybe not. Not necessarily aware. Hmm. Because if you look at awareness as a product of consciousness or consciousness and awareness as being the same, the absolute emptiness is before both. 
It's before the existence or the arising of awareness. Mm -hmm. It's prior to, primordial to. Not that we would crave or, or try to cultivate such an experience, but it happens. Mm -hmm. It happens where we experience absolute emptiness and openness. Yeah. But you said something there very valuable, which is that all of the, the meaningful and rich qualities of, of our essence arise within emptiness, whether it's joy or power mm -hmm. or love. They all arise within that spacious emptiness. That actually sort of speaks to something else I wanted to touch on, which was that the more that we are able to create the space of emptiness within our even just our everyday experience. Because as you dispense with the egoic structures and with these attachments to ideas of you know, who and what you think you are and even things, you know, fundamental things like your, your own body start to become increasingly irrelevant, what that does, I think, is open up a channel for love to move through, for God to move through, mm -hmm. unobstructed. Because all of those things sort of stand in the way until... You know, you, you are able to sort of tolerate that openness and to purify that space, if that makes can you, sense. Can you detail something for people who are listening, which is what you mean when you say mm -hmm. that things like the body are irrelevant? Can you, can you help them understand <laughs> what you mean by that? Yeah. Oh, God. Because um, I think I understand well, what you mean, but, it, you know. Boy, that's going to be difficult, but I'll try. Well, fundamentally, you know, before we question it, we identify with a body. I don't, I don't think we initially identify with a body in life. I mean, when we come into the world, as you've stated in past episodes, the baby, the infant first, thinks that it is continuous with its surroundings and um, that they serve it at its beck and call, et cetera. Um, dual unity. Dual unity. But then gradually, you know, the baby finds its body parts and realizes that mom is over there across the room and not actually part of its physical form. And so from that point forward, you know, human beings think of themselves as being identified with the body. What begins to happen in meditation and pratyahara, as you're withdrawing your senses, the body kind of goes to sleep and liberates the consciousness such that you begin increasingly to identify with pure awareness that is unbound by the body, that is, um, th you begin to realize that the body actually occurs as part of the fabric of your awareness and does not limit you to a space or to a time. And so in that sense, it's, you know, it's not like you don't take care of your body or you just go crash cars or something because it doesn't matter anymore, jump off buildings, but the body doesn't define you. Right. So it's just one more definition. Just like my name doesn't define me, my gender doesn't define me, um, you know, my hair color or my national origin or any of the things that, we, that the ego likes to point to to know what it is. Mm -hmm. As those things dissolve and as you see through them, you also see through things that seem impenetrable like physical form. And as we know, I mean, we can point to this scientifically when we say that, you know, the body is mostly empty space. It's just that our, the way that we have of perceiving it makes it seem like it's solid, makes it seem like it's a separate thing from the other bodies over there or, you know, um, the tree over across the way. But we are basically energy that has kind of temporarily taken this form and is ever evolving. So maybe this is way too long of an explanation, but in that sense, I, th I think there's like a balance between perceiving the physical and perceiving the emptiness in which the physical arises. And that balance tips. And as it does, the physical becomes ever less relevant. Mm -hmm. Does that work? 
I think so. I think so. I think, you know, one of the things that probably would be useful for people to understand is that emptiness is not a physical experience. You know, it's not a, right, it's, right. It's, it's a psychic experience. It's an inward experience. And so when we experience emptiness or openness or spaciousness, let's say, I guess this is where we get into a discussion about the grades of emptiness, because in some grades of emptiness, we can ex- actually experience our body as absent or, or dissolved. And in other cases, such as us speaking right now, I can sense awareness being continuous with the field around me and aware yes. of my body, but bigger than my body, not limited yes. to my body. I was just going to say that. Yeah. like, and, and this is almost a continuous experience for me now, is that my awareness is something like a big bubble that contains the body and is watching the body all the time, even though I can't, you know, I yeah. can't like literally see the back of my own head or anything, but my awareness I can sense is much greater than it. And, and you're right. Yeah. The body kind of disappears. Like I almost don't feel the surface of my skin that much anymore. I know it's there. Yeah. If I touch it, I can right. feel it, but I'm not continuously aware of it the way I once was. And I, I don't know right. what to make of that actually. I don't know if that's a vibrational shift or something, but. Well, just to clarify that at this point, we are talking more about awareness than we are emptiness, which is okay. But, mm-hmm. you know, as we touch on these parts of our being, these dimensions, we're actually talking about the boundless. And, yeah. you know, awareness is boundless. And, and that's, what's, that's what uh, makes it so very hard to comprehend in a subtle way is because we're so accustomed to perceiving what is bound, what has boundaries, what has form, what has shape. Right. And awareness doesn't. Right. It doesn't have a shape. That perception, that habitual perception of form is, it's actually just a mental habit. It's yeah. just the way our brains have been taught. I mean, it's, it's sort of intrinsic to the way a physical body operates, but it's a habit. I mean, our language refers to form. Our way of moving through the world is informed by form. Um, so the mind doesn't know what to do with the absence of form. Right. But as it learns that form is not an imperative, its experience of the world changes. Our experience changes because our framework has changed. Mm-hmm. So, it, so, and this is one of the many ways that we're always creating our world. Is you know, oh God, now I'm off on a tangent. But <laughs> I know we're unpacking a lot of big things here. <laughs> I love this though because it was so exciting when I began to see that my mind was kind of the problem, that my mind was the only thing Mm -hmm. limiting me. Um, Because my mind habitually has a way of thinking about things and arranging things in space that is not real. Yeah. Or maybe real for some purposes, but not the ultimate reality. And in that sense, if I perceive, if my brain habitually perceives form, but my consciousness is actually formless, then my brain is the only problem here. Yeah, well, it's very, it gets very interesting here because we make a transition from the finite mind to the infinite mind. And, right. you know, the finite mind is the mind which is interactive in an objective way with objects and, mm-hmm. and things and phenomena. Right. But the true nature of the mind is infinite and, and is empty. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is not some elaborate concept. I mean, this is if we directly perceive what is the source of our mind, what the source of our mind is, we find an absence there, right? Mm -hmm. So we know our mind more by, we tend to think of our mind as thoughts, but thoughts are still objects occurring in the mind. 
you know, we should ask ourselves the question from time to time, what is this thought occurring within? What is perceiving this thought? And if we look honestly and clearly, there's nothing there. And yet there is this active principle of intelligence, which perceives a thought, right? And so this, this understanding of the finite mind and the mind in its original nature as emptiness is a profound shift in our consciousness. In our first recording, we talked about purifying the lens through which God can express itself as us. The noose, yes. The, the noose? The noose. Mm -hmm. The eye of the soul. Spell that. N-O-U-S. Oh, okay. I, I don't know that word. It's, well, it's related to gnosis and knowing and knowledge and the eye, but the knowing of the soul, yeah. Ah, in French it means we, as in us. Ah, more interesting. Than one yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So we were talking about that. And in a sense, that's also what we're talking about in the idea of becoming nobody. If the brain has nothing to relate to, quote unquote, as me or I, then whatever it is next is what it is. It just keeps being whatever is required yeah. or whatever is unfolding in the moment. And that doesn't have a name necessarily. It doesn't have a narrative or a trajectory or yep. no rewards. You are simply in service of life. Can I share a sweet little story about this? Yes, please. When I was with, I went to the, uh, the park with Jai, my son, when he was about, he must have been about three or four. And we were on the swings together. And I was just curious how he would respond. So I, as we were swinging there, just, I mean, it was just such a beautiful fall day. It was so relaxing and the sun shining. And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jai. I said, well, that's your name, but who are you? And we were swinging back and forth. And he's, I could see that he was churning that a little bit. He said, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I know your name, but who are you? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, look and see. And he just stopped. And as he was swinging, he said, I'm swinging. Wee! And there was just this incredible delight. And it was such a pure moment together where he saw the trap of thinking of himself as his name. He saw the trap of thinking of himself as a thing. And he recognized he was just the moment happening. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And he articulated it in such an innocent and childlike way. But I was so moved. I mean, I was moved to tears by the moment. Yeah. You know. That's gorgeous. But but it, it hits at what you're saying, which is that when we cease needing to be somebody, mm -hmm. we can become that which is happening now. Right, right. I had that exact same experience, except I wasn't three or four. When we had that hurricane um, I was getting water out of my, my cistern to store, you know, to wash dishes and things um, after the power went out. And it was exactly that. I was standing over the pila and I had my bucket and I was lowering it and then hauling it out again. I had like four of them. And I ceased to be me. And I thought, I am the hauling of water. Yeah. yeah. And that's all it was. It was like that was all I was required to be. And that was the perfect expression of what was happening, what life was doing in yeah. that moment. And yes. there was a freedom, there was such a freedom, freedom's not even the right word, but there was an indescribable joy in not being, quote unquote, me. In yeah. Completely, in, in the me being irrelevant to what was happening 
in that moment. Yes. Emptiness is joyful. It's joyful to be nobody. And we don't, we don't see that from the point of view of viewing emptiness as a sense of deficiency or lack or, or, or apathy even, right? And, but yes, to just be, you know, in that sense, we start to understand that being is not a noun, it's a verb. Yeah. We're having, we're having a, the transitory experience of God knowing itself always. Our greatest joy then, the highest joy may indeed be to be simply a blank slate for the divine to flow in moment to moment, fill in moment to moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who've become empty. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for God can flow into them. Beautiful. Did you bring a poem? Yeah. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long. Um, I'm just going to read the first uh, six or seven stanzas. So this is from Rumi. It's called Craftsmanship and Emptiness. I've said before that every craftsman searches for what's not there to practice his craft. A builder looks for the rotten hole where the roof caved in. A water carrier picks the empty pot. A carpenter stops at the house with no door. Workers rush towards some hint of emptiness, which they then start to fill. Their hope, though, is for emptiness, so don't think you must avoid it. It contains what you need. Dear soul, if you were not friends with the vast nothing inside, why would you always be casting your net into it and waiting so patiently? This invisible ocean has given you such abundance, but still you call it death, that which provides you sustenance and work. God has allowed some magical reversal to occur, so that you see the scorpion pit as an object of desire, and all the beautiful expanse around it as dangerous and swarming with snakes. This is how strange your fear of death and emptiness is, and how perverse the attachment to what you want. Yep, perfect. It's perfect. It's like, yeah, go straight toward the emptiness. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Into the Mystery. We hope you gained something useful. If you'd like to learn more about our work, you can go to our websites. Mine is at adivadra.org, A-D-I-V-A-J-R-A.org, or visit Rishika's at interdimensionalyoga.com. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, be sure to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.